morning, church. We are going to be um, all over today, so make sure your fingers are wet and for flipping the pages back and forth this morning. And um, it is great to be here and look out upon you. You are beautiful. This is the beautiful bride of Christ right here. Look at you. Wow. Right now, Jesus is looking down and saying, look at my bride. Look how beautiful she is. They love my word. They go forward with clean hearts. They go forward with clean hands to serve and love. Look how they love me so. This is the beautiful bride of Christ right here, right now. Wow. Amazing. Turn to each other and say, you're beautiful. I will caveat this all by saying that um, I lost my glasses last Sunday, so I really can't see. Uh, Gerald has been preaching through the book of Revelation that records the vision given to John through Christ and his angels. And thematically, Revelation speaks to the truth that God rules history and will bring it to a triumphal climax in Christ. And at the center of the visions of Christ and God, where God displays his majesty, authority and righteousness is the ruler and judge of the universe. And the vision recorded in chapter one is Christ appearing as the majestic king and judge of the universe and the ruler of the churches. And in chapters two and three, Christ addresses specific needs of each church and reminds them of his powerful promises and the profundity of their calling. Chapters four through twenty two, the bulk of the book includes a series of visions intended to open our eyes as Christians, as believers to three key principles. Number one, the kingship and majesty of God. Number two, the nature of spiritual warfare. And number three, God's judgments on evil and the outcome of the conflict. God must and will win this battle, but his forces are opposed by Satan, who leads the whole world astray with lies and attacks. Satan, the great dragon, has two agents. That we will learn about as Gerald continues through Revelation here and his two agents are the beast and the false prophet and together with the enemy, with the devil, that makes them a counterfeit trinity. And so in opposition to these saints, we will learn those whom God has called and have faith in Jesus must maintain a true and faithful witness, even to the point of martyrdom. And if you remember back a few weeks ago when Gerald was working through Revelation chapter six and there in verses nine through eleven and the vision is revealed of the saints underneath the um, underneath the altar, if you will. Right. And, and John says, well, well, who are those that are dressed in white? And the response comes back. Those are the ones who have been martyred, but their number is not yet complete. And so we must wait for their number to be completed. And we must maintain a true spiritual purity. We as the church, while in the midst of intense suffering and spiritual warfare, that calls us to stand firm, proclaiming the entire word of God and our faith in Christ Jesus. In the new heaven and earth, your witness, church, our witness as the church finds fulfillment 
in the final light of God's truth and the purity and the beauty of the church takes perfect form in the spotless bride of the Lamb. In summary, God's word and revelation is about the glory and majesty that await us on God's celestial shores and gives us a glimpse of God's amazingly abundant and rich character of majesty, glory, radiance, beauty, righteousness, sovereignty, providence, mercy, and grace. And it is his final word. Indeed, if you think about it, the final period on the grand redemptive narrative that defines his plan for mankind, both those marked and claimed by God as gifts to Jesus and those who are not and are destined for hell. Eternity with the Creator, Father God, is breathtakingly spectacular. It is filled with hope and promise for the glory that awaits us. I yearn for it. I long for that day. There are times when the struggle becomes so real, as Care likes to say, uh, Care bows, the struggle is real. Is it not? And there are days when I yearn for the time when there will be a place of no sin, no tears, no pain, no tragedy, no treachery. Isn't that awesome? I look forward to that day. But, but, now, but now we live here. It's a place where Satan's evil trinity walks to and fro. Never resting. A roaring lion, Peter says, prowling at the door. Sniffing for a soul to devour. And in the guise of light and sweetness, spreading lies that God is not to be trusted. And therefore encouraging us to enter into moral bankruptcy in exchange for an endlessly mad pursuit of pleasure and happiness that never satisfies and always leaves us in a worse place than before. Make no mistake, friends. Satan's goal is destruction of relationships, destruction of your faith in God, and destruction of your life. Spiritual warfare with the enemy is real. And if you do not believe it is real, then you are risked it for attack. Church, we need to be prepared and we need to be trained for spiritual warfare. Today, the Lord has asked me that I speak to you about our cultural context and when you are most likely to be vulnerable to attack and why that is and what you need to do to be prepared. Let's pray with me. Abba, my father, I come before you standing on the truth and wisdom of your inerrant word. A little child, weak and needy with nothing to bring to you except an imperfect faith in you and an imperfect love for my savior and a love for your word. Please anoint the words that come from my mouth to be glorifying to you a sweet aroma and for you even now to open the ears and hearts and minds of those receiving this word today to wrestle with the hard questions around your promises to lead us into seasons of intense suffering and how we are to respond in a way that glorifies you. Come, Holy Spirit, attend to our hearts and souls 
Come, Lord Jesus, and be with us now. Amen. So why is it important that we are prepared for the attack of suffering? If you will, turn to Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. And we see here that uh, this is preceded by the war that arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fighting back. But he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. The ancient serpent is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, is thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And then in verse 10, we hear and a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you on earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Key points here, we, the, the devil, the enemy, will accuse us day and night. It never stops. He continues to whisper to us that you're not good enough. You're not good enough to be here. You're not good enough to be into the word. He'll remind us of all of the sins of our past. And he, and, and he will whisper those things. He will tell them back to the Lord. Do you, you see all these things that Jerome did in his past? Do you see... What he did. Do you see all the ways that he ridiculed you, O Lord? Do you see all the ways that he did not love you in his past? But we have conquered by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony that testifies that at the end of the day, our faith rests and stands on nothing more than the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So when are you most likely to experience the intense attack by the enemy? It's the same place as it always is. It's when you're walking your own personal Via Dolorosa, that road of intense suffering, when your world is turned upside down. Like Job, many of you have experienced that gut-wrenching blow, the death of a loved one, the tragic death of a young life filled with promise. Never be fulfilled. Cancer. The unfaithfulness of a spouse. The abandonment of a parent. A pregnancy that never delivers life. Dementia that slowly steals the mind. An automobile, an automobile accident. And failing health. The list goes on. And it goes on for each one of us. Suffering is real. It was real for Job, and it's real for you. But consider for a moment that God chose Job, did he not? He chose Job to be one of his suffering servants. He chose Job to be an instrument through whom to accomplish a spiritual triumph. Think back on it for a minute. Satan was walking to and fro. A homeless vagabond walking to and fro on the earth. God chooses to introduce Satan to Job. 
Satan didn't know anything about Job, did he? God introduces him and says, have you considered? Let me introduce you to my friend Job. And twice in the first chapter, we hear that, you know, that, that he, Job, is a godly man. Twice we hear that. And it's not from other people. It's not me saying Job is a godly man. It's the Lord himself saying he is a godly man. And so God chooses Job for this purpose. And Satan has the audacity and the arrogance to confront God and falsely accuses Job of serving God for the sake of material blessings. God gives Job the high calling of remaining true to God, even when his entire world is turned upside down and the grim reality of daily suffering is his new lot in life. It's his new vocation, as it has been with some of you. And it will be for all of us one day. It'll be our new vocation. This place is suffering. Job loses everything. He loses all of his material possessions. He loses his children and he loses his health. And so will Job do as Satan predicts? Will he curse God to his face? This is the question that drives the dramatic narrative of Job as Job loses his confidence and sinks deeper into despair and he has no help from his wife or his friends. What will happen? Will God curse God? Will Job curse God? God calls each one of us to suffering and he promises to do so. Peter in his first epistle prepares us in chapter one. If necessary, verse six, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That last day of history will result in praise, glory and honor. But you will be grieved by various trials. You will be you will suffer for the very purpose that your faith to God is more precious than all the gold in the world. And the only way that our faith is proved, the only way that our our faith improves, the only way that our faith is encouraged is through deep suffering, through the testing of fire. So why? So that we may be resulted in the praise and the glory and honor on the last day of history. And again, in chapter four, Peter encourages saying, therefore, and he mentions no words here. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will. It is God's will that we suffer. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And Paul in Romans 8:16 the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him so God promises that we shall suffer and that he will not deliver us from the suffering but will deliver us through the suffering as it prepares us for glory that awaits the faithful on the last day of history. God promises that we shall suffer and that he will not deliver us. He says he won't, 
He may. He may answer your prayer to deliver you from the suffering, but he promises that he will deliver you through the suffering. Why? Because it prepares us for the glory that awaits us as the faithful in Christ Jesus, the last day of history. The Bible presents a world that you live in. It's filled with dysfunction, disappointment, painful trials, and universal suffering. Within moments of our original mitochondrial DNA parents committing cosmic treason in the Garden of Eden, sin and suffering enters the world and becomes the norm. The Bible presents a horribly broken world, populated by fallen, broken people where nothing or no one functions in the way that God intended. And amazingly, the Bible presents the full horizon and landscape of brokenness, sin, and suffering in the very first book of the Bible, does it not? In Genesis. In Genesis 3, we read of Adam failing to assume his position of familial headship and spiritual authority and failing to take corrective action. Eve believes Satan's lies. Believes Satan's lies that God is a liar and he's not to be trusted and that the wisdom and self-determination of mankind is all that is required for our happiness. It is the beginning of humanism right there in chapter three. The ensuing verses reveals the train wreck of destruction that is always Satan's goal. Satan's goal and his secrets are widely known to all of us, is it not? That same lie that he whispered to Eve, he continues to whisper to us every single day. Did God really say, is God really be trusted And in so doing, he drives a spirit of separation between you and between him. And that is one of his key weapons that he uses even today. He desires to drive a spirit of separation between husband and wife, between parents and children, between team members at work, between us here. Be aware of the spirit of separation in your own life first before looking at that speck in somebody else's life. Adam and Eve's sin destroy the perfect relationship with God and each other. And as a result, mankind's character and nature is forever marked with shame, guilt, loneliness, anxiety, fear, exposure, pride, blame shifting, deception, lying and idolatry. God promises pain and suffering in childbirth and hard, difficult work to provide food, shelter, clothing and a finality to our days. There will be physical death. We will physically die. Death, as D.A. Carson points out in his book on suffering, is a pronouncement of judgment by God. We were intended to live forever. But God, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, says, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. God pronounces that there will be judgment and death is a form of judgment by the Lord. Physical death here on this earth. And then in Genesis chapter four, we're only in the fourth chapter of this whole book. And what do we find? Murder. It's not just homicide, it's fratricide. Cain failing to acknowledge that all things that we produce are a gift from God and that he has sovereignly reigns. And owns and knows everything. And that we're called to joyfully worship him 
And one way we do that is to simply give back a portion to the Lord with everything that we have produced by our hands, knowing that it is a gift from the Lord, knowing that everything that we produce is a gift. And so to give something back is a way of worship. And Cain really struggles with this. And God warns him, saying sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you. The sin of your heart desires to destroy you if you do not control it. And so jealousy fueled by whispering lies, the enemy fuel a consuming hatred that results in Cain murdering his brother. Scriptures present the drama of human existence as it really is. There's no sugarcoating it. In fact, it is so graphic and real that there are stories that are so twisted and dark that if this was a Netflix movie, you wouldn't you probably wouldn't watch it. You certainly wouldn't want your children to watch it. Noah's daughters get their father drunk and sleep with him to get pregnant. There's murder. There's extreme poverty. There's extreme bullying. There's unfaithful marriages. There's emotional and physical abuse. There's divorce. There's scandal. There's corrupt governments. There's corrupt people, corrupt judges. There's selfishness, slavery, jealousy, Manipulation, judgment for the sake of one's position and pride. Firstborn children are murdered to appease non-existent pagan gods. There's anxiety, there's fear, and there's the unjust execution of Jesus. Suffering is real. The whole of the Bible is filled with stories of real people suffering real things and how God meets them in their travail. We all know people who are suffering very horribly right now. People in this fellowship, in your life group, friends, family, and people at work. There's the death of a spouse, the death of a child, the death of a close family member. There's cancer, divorce, a marriage that is crumbling, dysfunctional families. There's addictions to drugs. Alcohol, sex, power, greed. There's 40-year-olds running around in two-year-old suits screaming for attention and love. There's effects of old age, bodies that don't work anymore. Brains that have begun that slippery downward slope of dementia. The loss of a job. Poverty. Gender identity. Extreme selfism. Pride, selfishness, self-righteousness. Physical, emotional abuse, and the list goes on and on. We are surrounded by the effects of the fall. We are surrounded by death, disease, and destruction. You have suffered, are suffering, or will suffer. And we all suffer in this life. But our culture tells us we don't have to. Many Christians today have a functionally operating soft prosperity gospel That's a result of living in the economically wealthiest nation of the history of the world. That says you don't have to suffer. But the real culprit is the pursuit of happiness coupled with the American dream. Get rich, retire early, play, enjoy, collect and play with your toys. And this insidious lie that, again, we don't have to suffer. 
The pursuit of happiness is twisted and warped by a humanistic worldview that uses it as the foundation to encourage and feed all of my self-isms, my selfishness, my self-reliance, my self-righteousness, and my self-determination. And the American dream is simply not scriptural, nor is it eternal. It will never, ever produce lasting joy, peace, and happiness. And the reason this soft prosperity gospel always failed to deliver upon its promises of happiness and no suffering is based upon the reality that it is only achieved by placing our love, faith, trust, and hope in things of this world and holding them up as idols worthy of pursuit and to sustain at all cost because they have become our identity. I'm thankful that while I love my Pittsburgh Steelers, they're not my identity. At least in the last, in the last three years, many of you that uh, are UNC or Duke fans can say the same thing. In Luke's account of the rich young ruler in chapter 18, the beginning of verse 18, we learned that the young man was rich. He was financially successful, implying that he was likely a very shrewd negotiator. He was a businessman. And yet he walked away from the most valuable, extravagant business deal, if you think about it. Right. He walked away. Jesus said, here's the one thing that you lack. Because he knew the man's heart, he knew what his value and his identity was tied to. And he said, walk away from that and come join me. And he couldn't do it. His wealth and his status defined him. And he traded eternal life for the things of this world that identified him and whose calculus determined his value. John, in his first epistle, in chapter 2, verse 15, says, Do not love the things of this world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The American dream, coupled with the name it and claim it prosperity gospel that defines this culture around us, is of this world. And if we love these things, if we permit these things to define our identity and value, then God's word says the love of the father is not in us. And we logically could extend that to say neither is Christ or the Holy Spirit. The American dream and prosperity gospel suggests that you do not have to suffer. And if you have the right kind of faith, you won't. Have you ever heard that? You ever been someplace? Oh, geez, you, you're suffering. I'm sorry you're suffering. You just don't have the right kind of faith. You haven't prayed the right prayer. That is so discouraging. And it's a lie. It's a lie from the enemy because God promises that we will suffer. He minces no words with it. So how do you deal with suffering? How do those, you know, how do they deal when hardships knock at the door? What happens when very real life changing events blow up the course and the cadence of your life? How do you deal with the pain and the heartache? Where is God in the midst of this horrible event? What is your identity grounded and rooted in or on? 
What does your self-worth and identity need to be sustained? What happens to your identity when the things of this world are removed from your life? We'll examine these questions, expose the truth of suffering, and identify the traps we need to watch out for and reinforce God's promises. So you have there, I'm not sure if you have paper to write on, there's a lot of very practical um, things that we're going to share with you here today that if you're able to take notes, I'll encourage you. Um, I was just thinking that uh, we, I think what I'll do is share these, the sermon notes with uh, Yvonne and um, if you could email her in the morning or whenever and I'll ask if she would be so kind to uh, to email those out to you as they as those requests come in. But let's take a look at a couple of truths of suffering here. First of all, suffering is never neutral. It's never neutral. You never just suffer the thing that you are suffering. But you always also suffer the way that you're suffering that thing. Two people might be suffering the same kind of thing, but they're going to suffer it very, very differently. And I think back on the time after my second um, arthroscopic uh, surgery on my knee, and I was meeting with a physician, and he had a, um, not a physician's attendant, what do you call them when they're, they're a doctor wannabe? Yeah, um, I'm forgetting the term, blanking on that. Uh, what? A PA. Thank you very much. Um, it actually was a PA in training. Um, they're an intern. It was an intern. And so, you know, he's asked me, so how are you doing? You know, this is my follow up, my two week follow up after the surgery. How are you doing? I was like, I'm doing great. You know, I came home. I, you know, took a couple of ibuprofen, slept great and, you know, been drinking a lot of water and keeping everything fluid and all that. And um, said, I'm great. You know, I've been up, you know, I've already walked my, my two miles. I'm, I'm doing really, really great. He's like, cool. Great. Um, anything else? I said, no, I'm, I'm ready to go. And he's like, he turns to the intern. He said, did you hear that? What's different about this guy's response compared to the one we just saw and listened to and their response that had the same exact surgery? Right. And apparently uh, this person's response was completely the opposite. So two different people suffering the same t- same thing, but. They suffer it very differently. So what can we do? What's the first thing that we can do right now to help us begin to suffer with wisdom? So most importantly is to know your own heart. And the psalmist in the end of uh, Psalm 139 asks the Lord, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The psalmist says, search me, know my heart, expose it to me. Ask God to reveal the truth of your heart to you and become very aware of the good fruit of the spirit and the bad fruit of the flesh that Paul talks about in Galatians 5. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, Paul says in verse 19, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, 
and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So this is, as Paul is saying, this is the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit being contrasted. And so each of us have roots in our heart, what I call our either um, sin roots or our fruit roots. And as with any plant, it produces some kind of fruit or seed and we are no different. And all roots need compost to grow into sturdy, healthy plants. And so our sin roots are no different. The compost that feeds your sin roots and spiritual and, and your spiritual roots is what motivates you. Let me say this again. So we have sin roots that can produce rotten fruit. And we have spiritual roots that are grounded in the things of God that can produce good fruit. And Paul shares what those are. But what's the thing that motivates you? What are the kinds of things that motivate us that feed those roots to produce either bad fruit or good fruit? So here's just a short list of the kinds of things that motivate fear, love, pleasure, power, control, freedom, autonomy, intimacy, significance, reputation, respect, admiration, Righteousness, peace, happiness, comfort, success, money, pain. These are things that motivate people. And Jeremiah in 17:9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And so what I'm challenging each of us to do today is to begin to really think about Knowing your heart and knowing it well and knowing what motivates you and your behavior that produces either good fruit or bad fruit in Matthew fifteen eighteen through 20. And how do you know what, what, what comes out? Jesus says, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. What's in my heart and comes out of my mouth. That's what defiles a person. So it's crucial that we invite God to expose the eyes of our heart to the reality of what is in your heart. Ask God to show you your sin roots that produce rotten fruit and the motivational compost that feeds those sin roots. So here's how it works. Here's how it works for me. When there is some stimulus that comes into my life, something, somebody asks me to do something or something happens that I have no control over or think of any kind of thing like that. And if that stimulus produces in me what I call a grr response, just a, 
just you've got to be kidding me. Really? It it produces in me this gerb response. That's a signal that a root of sin is beginning to produce some rotten fruit. Whenever there's something that goes against my grain about what I think is right or true, about what I think is the right way. For me, it's beginning to expose a rotten sin root. And so the first thing I think about is which root is it attached to? And so for me, my five roots of sin that I constantly work on hacking away at is selfishness, self-righteousness, self-reliance, a judgmental spirit and pride. So as soon as my heart starts to grumble with a gur, and hopefully before it comes out of my mouth in anger or complaining or self-righteousness um, or self or, or judgment statement, I can stop it and admit my weakness and ask for grace to feed and water my spiritual heart and deny the roots of sin access to the motivational compost that they need to survive. So why is this all important? Why is it so important to be so introspective when it comes to suffering? Because if you wait, if you wait until intense suffering and trial and difficulty radically blows up your life, then you will suffer the thing you are suffering in a very hard way. Because the pain of the suffering will be added to it. Because the reality that, they, that these sin roots, to some extent, define who we are. It's a part of who we are. And so the things that you are holding on to are under attack or are being destroyed. And that is God's will, is it not? It's a part of the sanctification process. Because when we suffer, our lives are forever changed. The horizontal things of this world that we trust in for significance and identity are being ripped away. And we don't just suffer the loss of the thing. We're also suffering the loss of the identity and the security that it provided. Physical health, productivity, wealth, friendships, all these horizontal things of this world They're not necessarily bad, are they? In fact, God's word is full of people being blessed in immeasurable ways. Job was immeasurably blessed with material things. He was one of the wealthiest men of the known world back then. But it should, these things should produce in us a deep gratitude and thankful worship of Jesus who provided them. But instead, we bask in our own glory that says, look what I did. Look what I've did with all of my own strength and all of my wisdom. And that's a problem. It's a problem because weakness is not what you or I should be afraid of, but we should fear our delusion of strength. And we also suffer because we have an expectation that life will always be the way it has been, that tomorrow will be the same today or yesterday. And think about it. How many times have you heard someone who's said in the midst of their suffering, I just want to return to the good old days. I just want life to be like it was. Or I never expected this. I can't believe she's dead. I'm shocked at what happened. 
We live in a world that has been dramatically damaged by sin. And God is a God of change. And he changes us through our suffering to produce in us what we could never produce in ourselves. If you are in a relationship, a saving faith relationship with Jesus, then your life was forever changed the moment the Holy Spirit invaded you and regenerated your heart to begin to seek after God. And God promises us that he will continue to change us every day, that he has sovereignly allotted for us to breathe that day, and he will continue to change us. This is the doctrine of sanctification. And the purpose is to be presented to God on the last day, prepared and ready to glorify him for all eternity. And suffering is a part and parcel of sanctification. In Romans 8:28, Paul says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And most people stop there. You hear that a lot. Most people stop right there. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among the brothers and those whom he predestined. He also called and those whom he called, he also justified and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So this good that Paul speaks to is not a name and claim it humanistic theology but our sanctification slowly, sometimes painfully, one day at a time, we are slowly being made into the likeness of Christ. And that is good. That is very, very good. And that process occurs through suffering when the horizontal systems and stuff of this world that we believe define our identity are stripped away and blown up. We are left with nothing but the Lord. Is Jesus all you have? Is Jesus all you need? Is Jesus your identity? Suffering and the change it brings is fearful. But scripture works to prepare us not to live in fear, to be ready for the things that we will face. And God gives us everything we need. He gives us grace, truth of his word, promises that he alone is sovereign and will providentially provide what we need. Therefore, God's word calls his people to face difficulty, not with shock, fear and panic but to experience with faith, calm, and confidence. Calm? The opposite of calm is shock and panic. 1 Peter 4.12 encourages us, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Shock and panic is the normative response to suffering when we are surprised, unexpected, caught off guard, unprepared and untrained how to respond. Be prepared, church, by knowing your heart's sin roots, the motivational compost and the rotten fruit that reveals the true nature of your identity and be prepared to change. Because the truth is your suffering is more powerfully shaped by what is in your heart than by what is in your body or the world around you. Suffering is more powerfully shaped by what is in your heart than by what is around you or in your body. Suffering is real. It is exceedingly difficult. It's hard. But it is shaped by your thoughts, desires, dreams, expectations, cravings, fears, and assumptions of your heart. Your heart is different than mine. Your roots of sin and motivational compost is different than the person next to you. 
your suffering is powerfully shaped by what is in your heart and by what is in your body or in the world around you. So know your heart. And as Proverbs 4.23 instructs us, keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. So what do you? What does your heart bring to suffering? It can bring eight different things. It can bring poor theology. God wasn't in this. God, God had nothing to do with this. It could bring doubt of God. God cannot be good. I will forever be angry with God and blame him for what happened. I'll never trust him again. Unrealistic expectations of life. The expectation of the American dream that it really is true. The pursuit of happiness. It could be the unrealistic expectations of others. Expecting other people to worship us. It can be pride. Everything is about me. Materialism. Whoever has the most toys wins. Selfism. Pursuit of my own interest to the exclusion of anything or anyone else. So what do we need? We need grace. So turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verses 7 through 10. And here, Paul, this is preceded by uh, Paul sharing that he has um, received visions that um, he was caught up into um, into a into heaven to a certain extent. And um, so he's he's essentially saying um, that he's been uh, he is, something has been shared with him that he's not really willing to go into detail on. And so he says in in verse seven there, so to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. We never know what that is. Is it just me? Um, I Never heard of any other commentary speak to this. This is just my my thinking on this. So take it for what it's worth. Um, this is not biblical. It's not it's never in the scriptures. Do we know what this this thorn is that God has given to him? This messenger of Satan to harass him. But I always wonder if it's not because Paul in his prior life was the one who was murderously pursuing those of the way, pursuing the followers of Christ, pursuing Christ in a very harmful way and putting people into jail and having them killed. And I just always wonder if that conscience was ever with him on this one. And but we don't know. But three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. How many of us here? With besetting sin that never seems to leave us. Have cried out on our knees to the Lord. Take this away. I am done. Take it away. And pleaded with the Lord. The response is, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast 
all the more gladly, Paul says, of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So know your heart. Know your roots of sin. Know the motivational compost that feeds your roots of sin. And admit your weaknesses to others that you trust and to God. And pray for grace to flood into the weakness. Because where I am weak, God is strong. I'd like to close with a real gallop through a couple of key points in Paul David Tripp's book on suffering where he identifies six traps and six comforts from God that are crucial to us during our vocation of suffering. And there is a lot of practical wisdom, biblical wisdom poured out. I would encourage you for your own edification to, if you have not read it, to read Tripp's book on suffering. It uh, has shaped my life. I have been a a student of, of suffering. I've always had the opinion that the church has never really truly prepared her people to suffer well and to be prepared. And uh, so I've read a lot of books uh, from different authors um, on, on, on suffering, but I have found this one to be particularly helpful because of the practical wisdom that Tripp um, shares with us. And so the six traps are awareness, fear, envy, Doubt, denial, and discouragement. The six comforts from God are his grace, his presence, his sovereignty, his purpose, God's people, and a heart at rest. We're going to take a quick look at all of these. The awareness trap. Suffering always includes spiritual warfare, and most people do not understand or realize that suffering always includes spiritual warfare. So be aware of that. Don't be trapped with a lack of unawareness here. And it's the reason is, is because we're generally as we're going through suffering, it's exposing some kind of an idol, something that we hold on to that's dear to us, that is forever being crushed and removed and it's creating intense pain and it's pain heaped up on top of the thing that we're already suffering. So for Paul David Tripp, it was absolute kidney failure. It went like that. A perfect, vibrant man in the height of his career, attending seminars and, and preaching and leading and writing books all over the world. And one day he's having a cup of coffee in Starbucks on a Sunday afternoon, and they walk across the street to the hospital in Philadelphia to have a something just kind of checked up real quick. And all of a sudden, these all these doctors and attendants are covered over him in hushed tones and whisk, whisking him away to ICU. And his world is completely turned upside down. And he'll never be the same again. His health is gone. Be aware that suffering always includes spiritual warfare. Because when we suffer, you must wage strategic war against the thing you are suffering, but also the battle for your heart. And be amazed at the ways that Jesus meets you in the battle. Suffering always makes us vulnerable in places that we thought we were strong. 
So I want you to make a list of the areas of your life where you think you are in control or where you think you are strong. Or that would bring pain and anguish if they were ever removed. And that list represents your highest vulnerability potential. And it helps us to walk through the valley of suffering because we understand the potential traps we will face. And it helps us to embrace the truths of God's comforts. So we must be aware that suffering always includes spiritual warfare, the battle for our heart. So let's look at a couple of the other traps, the fear trap. The fear trap is the reality that spiritual warfare is mundane, normal Christian activity because our hearts are always at a battleground between fear and faith, doubt and hope, what is true and what is false. The new reality, the thing you are suffering begins to control your meditations The more you meditate on the difficulty, the larger it becomes in your heart. Fear balloons and controls the brain. And God seemingly shrinks in size, power and sovereignty and goodness. I can remember the time that in 2012, um, a man who I respected, a dear brother in the Lord's army, had hired me to come work with him at a company. And um, within 12 months, he was fired. And... So what's the first thing that I did? Ah! And I picked up the phone. I called my, you know, two of my friends that were executive recruiters. You've got to get me out of here. I didn't drop to my knees in prayer and say, Lord, I have no idea what you're doing here. But this is all of a sudden very, very difficult. I didn't do that. The reality that starts to sink in is that we are weak. We're not in control And we're not independent. And fear can become our new lens and guide. Fear is a good thing in the face of danger, is it not? But it makes a very cruel God. It distorts your vision and troubles your own trouble. You've got to fight to see life with eyes of faith. Fear of created things is always a tempting trap to any sufferer. Fear of God does not remove suffering from life, but dramatically changes the way you suffer. Why? Because the math is not me compared against the size of my trial, but God compared to it. The math is not me compared against the bigness of this trial, this thing I'm suffering, but God compared to it. So God understands what we do not understand. He controls what we cannot control. He has power where we have no power. He gives what we could never earn. He is ever-present, ever-loving, and eternally gracious. And He is prepared to unleash His power and His grace into your weakness at the right time of need. When you give up your delusion of strength, power, control, self-righteousness, self-reliance, and self-worth that is designed by your stuff, your toys, your material garbage, He promises to measure out grace sufficient for the moment and the day. Fear is temporary. God's loving care is eternal. Nothing you or I fear in this broken world is eternal. It will not last forever and suffering will not last forever. God is eternal. His presence will be with us forever and his gift of grace will never be used up and it will never wear out. God's gift of grace never is used up. It never dries up. It's always there. It's always abundant And it's always for you to ask for in your time of weakness. Suffering never determines your destiny. 
God does. So what's our response? Fear always accompanies suffering, but it does not have to rule our hearts. It does not have to define our identity or decimate our hope. God is with us and for us, and he delights in unleashing his power and his grace for his little children. The envy trap. Envy lies. Envy never tells the truth. When you are tempted and you're suffering to look around, Job did this, right? Did he not? Job did this. He looked around. He's like, I'm, I haven't sinned in this matter, but why are all these other people living well? I don't get it. But when we're tempted in our suffering to look around and calculate at how others' lives are better than ours, You've got to determine to lift up your eyes to Jesus and celebrate that he has you in his grip. And find reasons to praise him. You must preach the gospel to yourself every day. Each of you preach something to yourself every day. The question is, is what are you preaching? And so get in the habit right now of preaching the gospel to yourself every day. Get in the habit of it. Preach the truth. Every day to yourself. The doubt trap. It's when you quit believing God is good. Doubt does not equal trust. If we doubt the goodness of God, then we will not trust him and will not turn to him. There's two kinds of doubt. There's the doubt of wonderment. And the doubt of judgment. Doubt of wonderment. God will exercise his power to deliver not what we want but what he knows we need. And he will do it on his timetable, not ours. He will not invite us into his sovereignty or his secret will. You may pray, God, reveal to me, why is this happening? It is a normative human response. Why is this happening to me? Why me? God never says he'll answer that question. Because of this, at street level, The life of faith is always a struggle of trust. If the doubt of wonderment causes you to come to God asking sincere questions, then asking is an act of faith. In fact, the Psalms, even particularly Psalm 88, I encourage you to read that this afternoon. It's one of the darkest Psalms there are, and it's filled with the very real life struggles of faith lived out and the hard questions asked during very, very hard times. The doubt of judgment is when we bring God into the court. We bring God into the court of our judgment and we determine that he is unfaithful, unloving or uncaring. And when we do that, we do not trust God and do not believe he is good, faithful or loving. And we begin to have a major theological shift. And many times without realizing we've ever done so. And the result Our hope is destroyed. The eternal hope we have held on to becomes an empty promise and we are left with no hope, no purpose in life. And in our misery, we blame God. We hold a trial in our head and heart and judge God guilty of failing to be who he says he is. And his promises are rubbish and lies. When that happens, we are in a very bad place, making the thing we are suffering even more difficult. This is one of the enemy's most powerful weapons to sow seeds of doubt. Peter again gives us encouragement in chapter five, verse nine, resist the devil, 
firm in your faith, knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Peter understands that in your suffering, the devil is whispering to you. Where is your God now? Have you been singled out? Why do others have it easier? Why isn't God listening to your prayers? Maybe God really doesn't love you. Your battle is not just the difficult thing you were facing, but the impact of the difficulty on your heart. So here are a few daily strategies to help you battle doubt. Fight the devil's lies by paying attention to your private conversations. Number two, count your blessings. Keep a running list. May I encourage you to start with Ephesians chapter one, verses one through 17. There's 18 blessings there in the first 17 verses. It is amazing and awesome. And every time that I start to read through that, it's just it's amazing. Start with Ephesians. Count your blessings. Keep it a running list. Daily confess your struggle to believe. Run to God. Dive into the deep end of a God-focused, gospel-centered pool. Pursue God with a passion. Pray for others first. Pray for others and yourself. Read the word. Participate in the fabric of the church. Worship. Life group. Disciple others. Listen to their struggles. Encourage them. Allow yourself to be an object of grace allowing others to practice grace and mercy towards you and joyfully let them do that. It's very difficult for me. That's because I'm self-reliant. Do not waste the thing that you are suffering. Sounds like our friend, Dr. Piper. And lastly, the denial trap. Biblical faith never asks you to minimize your suffering, to put on a happy face. Put on your big girl britches or man up. Biblical faith does call us to be honest and admit our weaknesses and where we are doing spiritual warfare. Where is the enemy attacking? What are the lies the devil is whispering in your ears? If you have to deny your difficulty to obtain a temporary peace, then you may obtain a temporary peace, but you are not exercising biblical faith. The author of Hebrews gives us great encouragement in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, where he says, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that way we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Jesus is your advocate. And because he is your advocate, we have a reason to stand strong, hold on to your confession and preach the gospel to yourself every day. Suffering exposes weakness that has always been there in your life, and it confirms how little in life we are actually in control. We are needy and we are dependent. God intended us to depend upon him for everything. And Jesus sympathized with our weakness and neediness. He knows what we are going through. And he has more than sufficient grace to flow into your weakness and neediness. Because Jesus walked in your shoes, you are free to be weak and to cry out in weakness. And you are free from ever having to put on a spiritual act. So the spiritual war that rages in the heart of every sufferer is a battle for the control of your heart. And 
I want to leave you with encouragement. Um, and I still have some time to go here. Um, but I, I want to lead you in a in a, a biblical way with some encouragement. If you will turn to Second uh, Chronicles chapter twenty, it'll be super helpful for us, and we'll we'll begin to wrap up here. But um, there is this discouragement trap as well that um, that is really amazing here. Uh, discouragement left unchecked. Discouragement will become your eyes and ears, determining what you see and hear and how you see and hear it. Unchecked discouragement will become the master of your emotions and ruler of your choices and actions. Unchecked discouragement will rob you of your hope and motivation. Unchecked discouragement will steal your reason for doing good things. Unchecked discouragement will make you closed, self-protective and easily overwhelmed. Unchecked discouragement will sap you of your strength and courage. Unchecked discouragement will cause you to see negative where nothing is negative and miss the positive that's right in front of you. Unchecked discouragement will tell you lies that have the power to destroy your life. Discouragement is natural for the sufferer, but it makes a very, very bad master. Deuteronomy in chapter 1, verses 19 through 33, tells a story of unchecked viral discouragement and fear that prevented the Israelites from moving into the promised land after they had learned of the well-fortified cities and the giants that inhabited that land. But here in 2 Chronicles 20, um, I've always loved this. is one of my favorite um, passages in, in all of Scripture because it shares with us a, a process here. So after this, the Moabites and Ammonites and with them, some of the Mennonites came up against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea. And behold, they are the Hasanat Tamar, that is the Angeti. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed fast throughout all of Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations in your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not our God drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it, have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment or pestilence or famine, we will stand before this house and before you for your name is in this house and cry out to you in our affliction and you will hear and save. And now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives and their children. And the spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jehiel, son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. And he said, 
Listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeril. You will not fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Koharites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And they rose early in the morning, went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And they went out. Jehoshaphat stood and said, hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord, your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, great, thank, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise the Lord, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end to the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. This is an amazing story, and it's such an encouragement for us. Jehoshaphat is in abject fear. He is suffering an amazing uh, affront from three different enemies coming together as one to attack the nation. And so what's the first thing that he does? He seeks the Lord in fasting. Deny yourself. Seek the Lord. Number two, there's the prayer. The prayer that reveals the truth of his heart that we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do. I don't know what to do. All I know is that they're bigger than I am. But my eyes are on you. But my eyes are on you. And then the message. This is not your battle. This is not your battle. You stand firm. Hold your position. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Don't be discouraged. Don't be afraid. Don't look around at other people with envious eyes. Don't look at other nations, but go out against them tomorrow and the Lord will be with you. And so what did they do? What was their response? Worship and praise. Worship and praise. That's our response at a time of great battle and great suffering as well. Worship and praise. And so what's the beauty of this? God takes the choir. Dresses them all up, puts them out in front of the army. And they begin to sing. They begin to worship and praise the Lord God. My friends, in the midst of deep suffering. Worship. And praising the Lord is the most amazing weapon that we possess. 
It is an amazing weapon to praise him for the truth of who he is, what he has done and what he will do. And in the times of deep suffering, the purpose of your suffering is to prepare you for eternal glory by slowly making you into the personhood and likeness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And in that there is great peace and great comfort. But if there is anybody within the sound of my voice that does not know Jesus, does not have a saving relationship with him, I ask that you seek out a mature brother or sister who has an understanding of the word of God and ask them some hard questions about your life. So your action items from today, examine your heart. Number two, make a list of your sin roots and your motivational compost that feeds them. Begin to understand where your identity is not in Christ, but your identity is placed in horizontal stuff of this world. Understand that when we go into suffering, we don't just suffer the thing that we are suffering, but we suffer the loss of the thing that we are suffering as well. And that spiritual warfare always accompanies suffering. Begin to preach the gospel to yourself every day. Pray with me. Father, if there is someone within the reach of my word that has not repented of their sin, and trusted Jesus with her life, then I pray do not tarry and send your spirit to quicken their heart with an acute sin sickness and horrible gut-wrenching realization that they are doomed for destruction apart from you. Weave your web of grace and mercy that moves the right people at the right time to speak your truth into their lives. Let their hearts desire to be the continuous pursuit of your holy, holy, holy name. And in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.